You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution, and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. Okay, if you have your Bibles, and I really hope that you do, um, why don't you open up to uh, the book of Acts. The book of Acts, it's in the New Testament. So the book of Acts. We are um, in Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8. And so without... um, spending too much time on this because we have a fair amount of visitors. Let me just kind of give you a shakedown on how we try and roll here when it comes to, to this um, component of, of our service. This is, we, in, in my opinion, not because I'm the one speaking, but because of what we read, this is one of the most important aspects of church, and that's the reading and teaching of God's Word. And um, one of the things that I'm very... Um, focused on and very adamant about is, is, is going verse by verse through books of the Bible. And, and um, I think it's just important. I think it helps us in so many ways. It allows us to see what's going on in the context. Um, it allows us to kind of remember where we're at. If we want to read ahead, we know what to read ahead. If we want to read back, it just helps the flow of everything. And, and on top of that, it, it allows us to just when we get to a certain topic or a subject or whatever, when we get there in God's Word, we talk about it. And we don't, it doesn't force me to try and be ultra-creative and think of amazing six-week studies and come up with awesome graphics. We make one, and it's this one for the whole study. <laughs> and, uh, and so that's what we do. That's the way we track. And, and um, it takes us a while, typically, depending on the book. Uh, we started in Acts before the holidays, before uh, Thanksgiving, took a break for Christmas, and now we're back at it. And, um, and so here we are. We're in the New Testament. We're at the book of Acts. This is, Acts is kind of the birth of the church. Okay, so we see the church kind of like what we are today. We see it birthed out here, and, and it begins, one of the things I love about Acts, it starts off, and Jesus is there in the flesh. He's with the disciples, right? He's, he's on a mountainside. He's, he's about to leave them again. He's about to ascend into heaven, and as he prepares to ascend into heaven, he's kind of leaving his disciples with kind of the, the last marching orders, and it's what we kind of call the Great Commission. It's, it's, we see the Great Commission in Matthew, but this is kind of, it reworded slightly, and, and as he's preparing to, to leave, he, he tells them, like, guys, listen, there's this power. I'm leaving, but there's this power that's coming, and that power we know is the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit, when he comes, he's going to give you this strength. Okay? And, and with that strength, you need to go and take this gospel into Jerusalem, kind of the home area of, of the disciples there, where they had been. And he's like, you go there first, and we're going to saturate Jerusalem. And then from Jerusalem, we're going to go to Judea and Samaria, the, the outer skirts. And then from there, it's to the ends of the earth, like everywhere. And we use that passage as our springboard into Christmas holiday. And we had this, what we call an Acts 1-8 Christmas project. We actually had three things that we adopted. One um, was the Timothy Initiative, which is a church planning organization. And uh, for every $300 we were able to raise, we were able to help plant a church. 
And what was cool is, is during this Christmas season, they actually had a partner who um, was matching funds for us. And so, so we ourselves gave a little over $1,600. And so that was matched um, to the point where we, with the matching, it came out to $3,300. So you do the math, $3,300. And for every $300, it equals a church. And, and this particular area, I believe, was going back towards Nepal. And so that was awesome. That was, that was good. That was great. That was, that was a, a good thing. We did shoeboxes. And maybe you've been part of that before, the Operation Christmas Child, the shoeboxes. And we, we collected stuff for probably two months. We had these big tubs all over the place, downstairs, upstairs. And we were collecting toys and trinkets and all that kind of stuff. And then um, we, on a Wednesday night, man, we cleared chairs out. We had tables. It looked like a flea market up here. It was, and the kids came in. The adults, we were here. We had Christmas music going. We had... Veggie tails playing in the background. I mean, we had hot cocoa probably. It was just, it was awesome. We had pizza, I think, right? Did we? I don't want to lie, but I think we did. I think we, but we had a good time. We'll just say we did, okay? And, and then we went through here and we packed shoe boxes and then we stacked them on the stage. And this is what's cool. We, we were able to send over 100 shoe boxes. Like to me, that's awesome. Like that, that following Sunday, we had more shoe boxes than people here. And I'm, I'm not trying to say that that's, we want the church to grow, but to me it was like we embraced it, we grabbed it, we're beginning to see the Great Commission and not just look at it, not just read it, but be involved in it. And, and the last part, one of the last things that we're working on still is um, this baby shower that we're going to do for the Women's Pregnancy Center here in Tallahassee. And you're going to get more information on that quickly. But... So that's where we start. We start this great commission. We see this church planted. The, the disciples, they go back to, to Jerusalem. They go back probably in the upper room of the temple. And then we see the Holy Spirit coming. And we see the church beginning to form. And the church grows rapidly. Like every time when the first few chapters we're reading, it's like 3,000, 5,000. I mean, boom, boom, boom. The church is growing. And it gets to the point where the disciples are having a hard time managing all of this stuff. And... Um, and there's a problem, and you have this, this kind of division, even in Jerusalem. You have these Hebrew Jews, uh, like really traditional, hardline Jews. And, and then you have these Hellenistic Jews, like, like the Grecian Jews. They, they spoke Greek. They were just more um, contemporary, if you will. And then there's this, there's this hardship, or at least the perceived hardship, that these widows, these Hellenistic Jew widows, these Grecian Jew widows, didn't feel like they were getting the same treatment that the other Hebrew Jew widows were receiving. And so they start complaining. And it reaches the ears of the disciples, and so they gather everyone together, and like, we got to come up with a game plan. And, and what they decided to do was they, they chose seven people. And a lot of times we, we turn these as, as like the first deacons of a church. And, and they get these seven guys, and the disciples tell them, you guys handle this project. You make sure that we're distributing this stuff evenly, and everyone's getting taken care of. And out of that, we see this, the list of seven people. And one of the people they, they, they mention there is this guy by the name of Stephen. And Stephen, we spent the last three or four weeks talking about. Stephen, like, again, first deacon, he, his primary task at the beginning is this Meals on Wheels program. He's getting the, the, this food and stuff out to the widows. But as he's faithful in that task, as he's faithful in that job that God's given him, he grows and to the point where he begins going into these other churches, into these other synagogues, and he's preaching and he's teaching and people are responding. And then you have this group, this, what the Bible calls a Sanhedrin. It's kind of like the Supreme Court of the Jews. 
the religious elitists, and they don't like what's going on. They don't like the message that Stephen's giving out, and so they arrest Stephen. And this is the same group, for, or for the most part, probably the same group that was going after Jesus when Jesus was on earth. This is the same high priest, probably Caiaphas, who was there leading the charge against Jesus. And here Stephen stands before this group. And chapter 7, a majority of chapter 7 is his response. It's his message, a sermon that he preaches. It's the second longest recorded message in the New Testament. And in that, he tears down a lot of their traditions. And, and, and what we find there in these old, in this particular time, that these um, religious people were, were worshiping Moses and his law. They were worshiping the temple. They were worshiping their own heritage. And so Stephen, one by one, goes and says, listen, the law is good, but we don't need to worship the law. Moses was great, but he's not the Messiah. Our heritage is wonderful, but our heritage doesn't get us to heaven. And as he is speaking this, they begin to grit their teeth in anger. And they're mad and they're upset to the point where they go and they take Stephen outside of the city wall and they stone him, they kill him. And that's kind of where we ended last week. We, we ended this story with, with Stephen, this great disciple who, who grew in his faith and who, who grew in these gifts and he was doing what God wanted him to do. And, and the result was him being killed. And what's neat about that passage is as, as, he's, as they're casting stones at Stephen, Stephen is transfixed. I mean, he is focused on heaven to the point where Scripture tells us that he sees Jesus standing. So most of the time in Scripture when we read about Jesus in heaven, he's sitting at the right hand of Christ or at the right hand of God. But, but Jesus is standing, and there's this glow about Stephen. And Stephen, uh, to me, one of the most remarkable things is as these people are hurling these stones, he says a prayer just like Jesus did from the cross. And he says, Father, forgive them. Don't, don't forgive these people for what they're doing. They don't understand what's going on. And so Stephen dies, and, and this is where we begin to see the Great Commission forced out. Here, up to this point, they've been solely in Jerusalem. But here, now, this persecution comes. We are introduced to this guy named Saul, who in the next chapter we'll, we'll get much more familiar with. But there begins to be this witch hunt on these Christians. And so most of the Christians, and really what we see is the disciples stay in Jerusalem, but a lot of these Hellenistic Grecian-type Christians will flee and one of these other deacons that we mentioned a few weeks ago by the name of Philip now takes some center stage. So I say all that to get to our scripture. So we're going to read verses 5 up through 25, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get at it. So Acts chapter 8, verse 5. It says, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what he was being what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw things saw the signs that he did verse 7 for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who had been had who had them and many were paralyzed or lame were healed verse 8 I would underline this it says so there was much joy in that city Verse 9 says, But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, 
saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip, as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to him Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he, was, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Verse 17. And when they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit, now when Simon saw the Spirit was being given through the laying out of, hand, of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gale of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Let's pray. Lord, um, I ask in, in the next few moments that you help us. Lord, I, I ask that you allow us all to do a self-examination. Help us to look through this lens, this passage that you've given to us today. There's, there's a lot here, and, and Lord, in the next few moments, there's no way we can exhaust this, and, and I, we will fall short of, of, of uncovering all. But as we look at a few key points, may your word penetrate our hearts. May we receive it. May you give us the strength to make whatever decisions we may need to make. Lord, I pray that if, if there's some here this morning that may not know you, that they've never accepted you as their Savior, I pray that your word convicts them and Holy Spirit that you show them. Lord, if there's others in us, of us in this room that just, just need to get our lives back on track and do what we ought to do, may, may this be a conduit to that. Holy Spirit, I pray that you allow me to be faithful to the Bible. Jesus, I pray that you give me your words Give me your passions. Give me your heart. And may all that we do and all that we say bring honor and glory to you alone. It's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. So as we look at this passage and as we read those 20 verses, there's a lot going on. And and for us to understand some of this, we need to do a little quick little um, history lesson, if you will. So, so I, I think we have like two miracles right off the bat. Philip going to Samaria and then Samaria receiving what Philip said. You see, I, so I say this, um, there's this big wall between Jerusalem and Samaria. Not a literal wall, but this wall of division. There's, there's for lack of better words, you have this, this racial division. And if we go back, and this isn't anything that's new to this, this time frame. In fact, it's something that's gone on for 
had gone on for hundreds of years. Um, Gavin, we have this picture up here, okay? So for those of you that can't see it, sorry. You have this, this kingdom. The kingdom of Israel had been divided into two areas. You have the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so the, in this picture, the map here, the northern kingdom is blue. And you see that star there? That's Samaria. And Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. The southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. Now, in uh, 1721, I believe it was, B.C., the Assyrian Empire comes and they, they conquer the, the northern kingdom, the blue area. They conquer that. And part of what they did was they would take the people and they would move them out. They would take the, the, the areas they would conquer. They would take many of the people, move them away, and try and force them into their, their culture. And, and what eventually ended up happening is a lot of the Jews intermingled and intermarried with the Assyrians. And so they kind of earned this this name as being half-breeds. Now, later on, the southern kingdom, and we talked about this summer when we went through the book of Daniel. Okay, the southern kingdom would be conquered. Babylon would conquer. I believe it was like 857 B.C. or somewhere around there. They're, they're conquered, or 587 B.C. They're conquered. But the difference is the, the, the Jews there, they never intermarried. And so as they return home, they're still purely Jewish. And so we have over 500 years of this division. And, and when you go back in the Old Testament into to the book of Ezra, and when, you, when we remember the story of Nehemiah rebuilding the wall, there's at that, in that story we can read already this division between the Samaritans and, and they're causing problems. There's this whole backlash. And so this division, this, this, this racial separation goes back hundreds of years. Now you fast forward, John chapter 4, one of my favorite chapters in, in, in the Bible. One of the first messages that I preached here at Redemption Hill was in John chapter 4. And I love, as, as Jesus and the disciples are, are going, it said that, that they must need go to Samaria. When we read it at first glance, it does so what? This is a huge thing. Remember, Jesus and his disciples, they were like the Jewish Jews. They were the, they were the hard core, like straight, the pure, undefiled Jews. And they're being called, and Jesus says, we got to go here. And there's this, again, this division where those Samaritans, they're, they're viewed as second-class citizens. They're viewed as, as these half-breeds. They, they, they have their own synagogues. They even built their own temple. And they, they adhered to a lot of the law of Moses, but then they had adopted these other superstitions. So it's this kind of hodgepodge going on here. But here's the deal. There was this intense dislike to the point where many of these Jewish rabbis in Jerusalem would add to their prayers that they would ask the Lord to forget the Samaritans at his second coming. Like, that's intense. And I love how when Jesus is there and he, he meets this woman at the well and he had this beautiful story and he, he shares what ultimately is the the eternal water to her. And she accepts him, and then she goes to the village. The village comes back, and we're going to come back to that story a little bit. But here's what we see is we see Philip, who is running from Jerusalem, and he goes to Samaria, an area that he's been taught and, 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 and shown was second-class citizens. They would refer to them as dogs, as half-breeds. You know, um, this isn't the crux of the message today. 
We, in my estimation, in the last few years, have seen racial division arise in our country to levels that appear to be almost back to the Martin Luther King days. Now, I wasn't around during those days, so I can't speak from experience. But we see all sorts of stuff, don't we? I mean, we turn the TV on, we see the stuff that happened in Ferguson. Right? We, we see all, and again, this is whether, we, whether it's justified or not, whatever, all I know is this, it is bubbled up. And one of the, this is what is interesting. I think sometimes we become um, insulated from some of that stuff because we're Tallahassee. We're small, relatively small town. And so when we see this, we, we see this on, um, on the news and it's in Ferguson or it's up in Baltimore. Or it's away from us, right? And in our own little bubble, it seems everything seems pretty all right. Here, here I'm, uh, this last week, I came across this. There's this a church here in Tallahassee, Shady Grove, um, which I believe is off of Centerville. You, you see that? That's their sign. Look at the, the doors there. And obviously, it's primarily a black church. I, mean, I think we have one more picture. It's hard to see, but on those front doors, they have spray-painted KKK and then along the brick. Now listen, it could be some punk kids, but I, I, saw, I saw that, and I just about wept. Because here we have this, we have a church, and, and, and they're, just, they're just trying to do what they feel God's calling them to do. And I couldn't even imagine rolling up and seeing that. I reached out to one of their pastors this week and said, listen, I don't know what we can do to help, but let us know. I mean, if, if you need help scrubbing the walls, if you need help painting if you need what i don't care what let us know because i want us to come help when we talk about the great commission one of the challenges that we've I've, i presented to us as a church is this year we're gonna we're gonna designate a certain amount of money towards missions we're gonna try and work hours doing missions like this to me classifies as all of it that we come alongside a, a sister church in our community because rally is this like god doesn't see black or white folks and i'm speaking to a predominantly caucasian audience I'm going to let you in a little secret. His skin color was closer to theirs than ours. <laughs> but we have that same division today. And one of the things that we see out of this passage is this. God's called us to share the gospel to everyone. So Philip shows up in Samaria. And, and Philip, although he's running, and we're going to read more, we're going to see that, that Saul's on this witch hunt, and he's going beyond Jerusalem. So Saul could, or, or, or Philip could have easily just kind of gone and hidden but he didn't. He went to Samaria, and he begins preaching, and the people receive it. Like, the Holy Spirit receives it. And one of the things, as we were reading, I told you guys to underline, is what we see is, is the gospel, what, one of the byproducts of the gospel we see is in verse 8. It says, and so there was much joy in that city. See, the gospel was transforming Samaria. We understand as we read through this more that, that this, there's this other guy in the town named Simon, and Simon's a big deal here to the point where they were calling him great. And when they say great, they're referring to him like having powers like God, almost worshiping this magician Simon. There's a lot of ugliness there in Samaria. But, but they go, and, 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 and Philip is preaching, and they turn away from that, 
And in the midst of that, they're talking about all this, this awful stuff. There was like this wailing, and, and people were sick, and they were crying. But when the gospel shows up, the, the, the city, the town gets happy. People are healed. The, the laughter, or the, the crying turns to laughter. It changes the whole community. And Simon sees it. He, he sees these miracles now that, that Philip's doing. And for a brief second, as we're reading that, we see it says there that, that Simon believed. And we're like, oh, wow, this is awesome. Like the one guy, the magician, the guy that, that they were all worshiping, now he's turning to Jesus, and he's going with them, and, and they were all being baptized. I mean, even Simon, I don't know if he wandered around with a robe before with the zodiac all over. I don't know what he looked like, but, but it looked like everything changed. So we see at first that the gospel is meant for everyone. And we have been challenged, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, those of us who claim to be Christians, we've been commanded by Jesus, going back to Acts 1-8, to go. Right? We're supposed to go and share. And, and if Philip, in the midst of this intense persecution, going into a land where he didn't necessarily like them and they didn't necessarily like him, if he goes there and he's t- proclaiming the gospel, then there should be nothing that stops us from doing the same. But as I jokingly said this morning, the devil is real. New Testament tells us that, that he's like a, a lion wandering around seeing what he can devour. And sometimes we might have this cartoon picture of a, of a guy dressed in red with horns and a pitchfork he's real and when he sees God doing good he tries to rear his ugly head in and disrupt and 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 Simon had these powers before I mean he he did miraculous things And, and sometimes you know what we think when we see a miracle that it must be of God but that's not necessarily the truth go back into Exodus chapter 7 when Moses the Old Testament, Moses is trying to deliver the children of Israel out of Egypt. And he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh asks for a sign. So he, he gives Aaron his staff, and they throw it down, and it turns into a snake. You guys remember the story? So Pharaoh calls up his magicians. They do the same thing. They take their staff, they throw it down, turns into a snake. Pharaoh, is that the best you got, Moses? So Moses rolls up later on. Nile River pff, turns into blood. Pharaoh calls his magicians. They come up. They find other water sources. They turn that water into blood. Another sign. Moses calls for frogs. The frogs show up. The magicians do the same thing. Here's the deal. The devil has power, but he'll never make anything better. It just makes it worse. I mean, the one thing that those Egyptians didn't need were more snakes, more blood, more frogs. What they needed was deliverance. And here Philip comes in to this community who has been entrenched with this magic of Simon and he offers deliverance. And they hear it and they accept it and they change. Peter and John, their disciples in Jerusalem, catch wind of this. And so they come down. Peter and John come down there to see what's going on. These people have been, become believers. They've accepted Jesus. They've been baptized. And so Peter and John kind of show up to make sure this all looks pretty legit. And then they pray over him. And, and this is what's interesting. And one, this is what, we, we don't have time to dissect this too much, but, but we realize here that they don't have the Holy Spirit. One of the things I will kind of want to encourage us, that as we go through the first, especially the first 10 chapters of Acts, 
It makes a, it's a little sometimes complicated to create some hard church doctrine because we're in this period of some transition. And it wasn't because God was, was, was trying to figure it out or trying to learn on the job. But I believe this, God uses this as a very special moment. These people in Samaria have, have come to know Jesus. They've been saved. They've been baptized. And Peter and John come, and they pray over them. And as they pray and lay hands over them, you have this beautiful connection of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You, you, you see the Jews and the Samaritans coming together, this physical touch becoming one body. Not two separate churches, but one church. And as they pray, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. And Simon sees it and is amazed. And now we begin to see the true colors of Simon. Because Simon begins to try and figure out how he can have that power. And the solution he had was, well, money can buy anything. So how much will it take? How, how much do I have to pay you to allow me to do that? Because that's what I want. He has this addiction to power and prestige. And so Peter, in his boldness, rebukes him and tells him his, his money is worthless. In fact, really goes to the point where he's saying it's his money and his power that's dragging him down. And we see a sad situation, I think, here. Because Simon had all the outward appearance of looking as if he's following Jesus. He's going to the Bible studies. He said a prayer. He got baptized. But that faith had never traveled to his heart. I, I heard it said once before, that many will miss heaven by 18 inches. It's a small, small gap, isn't it? You say, how can you miss heaven by only 18 inches? See, because a lot of people know there's a God. I mean, you, you go back in Scripture, James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. I mean, James is saying, listen, it's not good enough just to say you believe in God. The demons, the devil, they all know that there's a God and they all tremble and shudder. So just saying that you know that there's a God isn't enough. It's allowing that head knowledge to travel to our hearts. That's why I think the book of James is so, such a, a, an amazing book because James deals with this idea of faith and works. And so much of us today, we, we live in a culture where some work so hard to try and obtain a salvation. They'll do all these different jobs. They, they think they have to do something special in order to, to gain this gift. When the reality is it's this free gift. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace you are saved through faith. It's nothing that you can do. Jesus, John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. That's it. I mean, Jesus makes it. You can't make it more simple. And so people will say, well, so it's all faith. Well, it is all faith, but here's the reality. When faith becomes real, when faith becomes genuine, the natural outflowing is works. Again, the works don't get us to heaven, but the works say, listen, I believe so much in this that I'm going to naturally want to do something with it. And Simon just wanted the magic. And I think in our own day and age, we might not look at this and say, well, I just want the magic of laying hands on people and giving the Holy Spirit. But, but many of us fall into this trap that we think that, that um, 
that we can buy God's favor like this. For many, tithing is that. So at the end of the service, we pass baskets around and we put money in the baskets as if what we're saying, God, is okay, here's my money now. Now what? And I think even in that realm of, of giving, and we use this church term, tithing, and we go to the Bible and we, we get that idea where we give God 10%. But, but even the way in which we think through that sometimes is off because it's like we, we in our minds, we're thinking, okay, God, I'm giving you 10%. When the reality is we're just giving back 10% of what he's already given us. Sometimes we, we, we do this. Um, we get in those rough patches of life. Maybe a hardship in our marriage. Maybe it's a hardship at job. And so we double down and we start reading our Bibles more and we start praying more just with the idea that we think that's going to earn us this additional favor. Listen, tithing is good. Reading our Bibles is good. Praying is good. But if you're doing it with the idea that you're trying to earn something from God to where God owes you, we're missing the mark. And that's where Simon found himself. He wanted, he wanted, he wanted. And Peter is upset, but what I love about Peter in this story is he sees, he sees Simon's response. He sees his heart. And Peter tries to go right at him. And we see this grace in love. When, when, when Peter says to him in verse 22, he says, repent of this wickedness of yours. And pray to the Lord, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And he says, he goes, I see that you're, you're stuck in this bondage of iniquity, this bitterness. He goes, and Peter's saying, I see this. I can see it. Just, just repent, like, like turn from this, this bad stuff and then truly, genuinely come back to Jesus. And the response of Simon to me is, tragic because Simon says why don't you just pray to the Lord that that doesn't happen to me he didn't say I need to get forgiveness he didn't ask for help in finding the way he just simply says well just pray that it doesn't happen to me one of um, to me one of the most um, difficult passages in the Bible to read is found in Matthew. Midway through the book of, of Matthew, Jesus is talking and, and Jesus says, listen, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Those who enter in it are many, but for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. So Jesus begins prepping and saying, listen, there's these two path and there's this one and it's wide open it's a there's a there's a lot of people on this road and going to a big old gate it's easy to find and that's destruction it's hell but then there's this little tiny road and this little tiny road if you find it and follow it it leads to heaven but to me one of the most difficult things to read is found later in that same chapter matthew 7 Verse 21. And again, this is Jesus speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, 
but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23 says, Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. As I was reading that passage this week about Philip and Simon, I couldn't help but think of that verse in Matthew. When Jesus says, listen, there are going to be many who will stand before me. Say, Lord, Lord, look at, look at all that I did for you. I prophesied. I did, these one, I did all this for you in your name. Now let me in. And Jesus is going to turn and say, depart from me. I never knew you. See, my, my, my fear is that we have in churches everywhere, people that are resting in this idea that the tie they put in a basket or, or the prayers that I say or the studies I'm involved in or the, the good deeds that I do, that's going to earn me something. And when Jesus said, listen, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus saying, it's me. It's not you. It's me. And as I thought about Philip and Simon this week, I couldn't help but think, Lord, like, turn the lights on in our minds. Help us to understand the gravity of all this. That we've, we've, or I've quoted from James several times a day, but James tells us, listen, we brag about tomorrow, but there's no promise. I mean, James describes life like a mist. Some of us have this idea that, listen, I'm just going to do what I want to do now. I'm going to work hard. I'm going to make all this. I'm going to do whatever else. And then one day later in life, I'll get right with God. There are no promises that there is a later. We have here and now. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. And we can't read this passage without coming face to face with that. And we have a choice this morning. We can either receive God's word and do it, or we can keep walking the way we've always done. My prayer as I prepared this is that that God just allows me to be faithful and to share this truth with you. Not sugarcoat anything. When we draw our last breath here on earth, and that's something everyone in this room will do. When we draw our last breath here, our next breath will be somewhere in eternity. But there's only two places. There's, the Bible refers to a place called hell a place of eternal damnation, a place of separation from God. And it describes it in a horrific way. But then there's heaven, and that's eternity with him. We have a chance to, to worship with him, to sing with him, to love on him and him on us. But we're faced with one of those places. We make that decision not after we take our last breath, but before 
And I don't want us to rest in things that we've done in the past. I want us to be able to have the confidence in knowing that that we do truly believe in Christ and that we've asked forgiveness of our sins. We've asked him to become the Lord of our life, that we've given our lives to him and we're going to follow him and do what he asks us to do and rest in him. So this celebration we have here, we can have in heaven together. Let's pray. Lord, um, I thank you for this day. I thank you for your word and the clarity of it. God, I thank you that we have the Bible to see these stories and be able to see people and how they did respond to you and how some didn't. Lord, I ask over the next few moments as we sing this last song and get into our time of of invitation. But just for the next few moments, that you take away all the different distractions. The book of James tells us of our lives, where it's like when we receive your word, we, we look into a mirror Lord, my prayer is that, that we don't just walk away realizing our hair's a mess and we're all disheveled, but we look and we see, and we, and we see the areas in our lives that need to change. We, we, we come to grips with, with giving up our lives to you. That we realize that, that you love us, and that you died on the cross for us. And it's not giving up anything, but rather it's receiving the greatest gift ever imaginable. So Holy Spirit, I pray that you do your work, that you convict us where we need to be convicted. You show us what needs to be changed and give us the strength and the courage to follow. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.